back to Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet about movies, and you are joining us in our heist miniseries. We've been talking about all the crime flicks that we think are cool. My name is Cameron James, aka Mr. Green, because oh. I don't mind hitting the old dooberoony. <laughs> And of course, I'm sitting opposite Alexi Toliopoulos, aka, what's your color going to be? Mr. Blue Ray, baby. Blue Ray. Yeah, because I love spinning those discs, and I'm one of the greatest features of DVD culture in the country I call home, Australia, proudly. Proud Australian. We're both proud Australians. That's something we don't say enough on this podcast. We don't say it at all, but we are proudly Australian. A lot of people listen to this podcast assuming we're probably Canadian, or because yeah. of the wealth of movie knowledge we have, they're mm. like, holy shit, these guys must be Hollywood inside artists from America, but alas, we are pitted at the very asshole end of the world here in sunny Australia, and we're proud of it, babe. We're really proud, Aussies, but I consider us to be citizens of the globe. I do consider that too, until one moment in history where I decided to become Australian, when Mm. my hero, Quentin Tarantino, donned the Mm. accent that emits from my head and the head of you as well in his movie Jangoid Untrained, where he started talking as if he were me and you, an Australian guy that loves movies. A lot of people say the Australian accent is very difficult to replicate, and we've seen some great actors tackle it in the past. Mm -hmm. Meryl Streep, of course has taken on the Australian accent. Robert Downey Jr. has taken on the Australian accent Mm -hmm. a couple of times. Tropic Thunder, of course. I would say that the greatest Australian accent that I've ever heard with my two true blue ears (laughs) came out of the fucked up head of that Quentin Tarantino (laughs) in Django Undoined where he said, like, he's like, excuse me, mate, I'm a fucking Aussie cowboy from Down Under. And I'm here to set you free or maybe take you prisoner. I can't remember exactly what my character is doing. Either way, I'm going to do it. I'm up to, I'm up to some rough stuff, mate. So whatever it's going to be, I'm going to do it. Crikey, strew, strike a light. All right, let's put him in the bloody uh, cage. And that was one of the most exciting moments in mm. cinema history for a couple of young bucks like Standing us. Standing ovations in Australia. Mm-hmm. Standing we ovations. We so excited. We all started singing the national anthem going, <laughs> he's one of us now. He's we can claim Quentin Tarantino, the teeny weeny feeny himself. Quentin Tarantini. We saw Tarantino live down here. We saw him live down under. We watched uncut, a couple of movies uncensored. with him. We, we saw did. he put on a screening of two of his favorite Aussie westerns mm-hmm. down Mad here. Mad Dog Morgan mm-hmm. and, of course, The, the Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. Beautiful freaking movie. One of two my great favorite films. Australian films. Yes, well, one of them's great. I think they're both great. <laughs> Just Mad one Dog is Morgan. one is genuinely great and one is yeah. fucking crazy. <laughs> Mad Dog Morgan is crazy. The only way I can watch that movie and it makes sense is if you go, oh, this is an Australian Monty Python sketch comedy it's movie. The weirdest Mad Dog Morgan. Uh, everyone's got to see it. Everyone should mm. see both those films. Yes, the Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith is like a work of art, but Mad Dog Morgan is a work of shot. Oh, it's glorious. (laughs) It's It's actually glorious. It's It's so much fun to watch. Yeah, a blast to watch in a a cinema too. And a blast to watch 
with Quentin Tarantino sitting a few rows in front of us. Oh, God. We could see the back of his head cackling away while and we were then, watching uh, the movie. And then he got up between both movies and Betwixt had a little chat, talked with about- Fred Skepsi. Yes. He talked Fred Skepsi. He talked to Thomas Keneally, the two mm-hmm. guys, the brains behind the chant of Ginny Blacksmith. And no he- one involved in Mad Dog Morn showed up. <laughs> he talked about how much he loved Australia. Mm. Uh, he was presented with a signature tin of VB- that had been changed to say QT. Yeah, because he's a cutie pie. And he lo- apparently he loves VB, which is weird. Yeah. He said, on my films, we always have VB, Victoria Bitters. It's one of the best freaking beers we've got. Yeah, he, see, he told some story about like shipping VB in from Australia on Yeah, Glorious Bastards, Glorious Bastards or something. Yeah, it was bizarre. So we love Tarantino. We've talked at length about Tarantino on this mm-hmm. show. It's, it's a love-hate yeah. sometimes. It's an embarrassing love sometimes. Mm-hmm. And this- I have to say, is the first time we've ever talked properly about this film. I think so. I remember back in the early days of our Patreon bonus podcast, which, of course, you can get access to for five bucks a month. We did a commentary track for this movie. Yeah. And I think that was the last time I've seen this. So, it's been like four years or something since I've seen this film. Wow. I think I watch it every year and a half. Okay. Wow. So you're, <laughs> wow. Okay. So you're a bit more of a fan of the Res Dogs than I am. Well, I just go through all of them, you know. Like I hit a point where I think, oh, you know what? I'll watch a Tarantino movie, and then next thing you know, I'm watching all of them. Mm. And recently, I just did that exact cycle. I started with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, oh, and I worked my way backwards. Oh, good lord! I a move yes. that is so unconventional. It could yes. be a yeah. plot. In of a Tarantino film itself, the guy likes to work in complex narratives and Reservoir Dogs is a prime example. We're talking mm. about his debut film. Mm. It's a heist film. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I love talking about debut films if you can. It's mm. one of my favorite things to do is look at an artist's first work and yep. see how we recontextualize it, knowing everything we know about them in the future, such as this guy loves to suck big old toes. <laughs> <laughs> it's there's very little feet in this movie. Maybe no feet. Yeah. But um but this movie it does have some of the hallmarks that would become classic Tarantino tropes. It has the very beginnings of things that would grow and blossom mm-hmm. to become a Tarantino style. And one of my favorite things is it has stuff in it that he never did again. He experimented with styles that he then went, actually, that's a bit lame or that's not quite me or I'm copying that from somewhere and he didn't do it again. So, I think it's kind of fun to watch a first film for that reason. Especially with someone who is such a well-known auteur whose hallmarks we do know so well and to see something like this and revisit it time and time again, I do find it interesting to see how fully formed his voice does feel Mm. so early on. You know, it's based on all those great- Great chit chats he would have been having at video archives uh, with all these other cine freaks mm. talking about films, and his love of film is so apparent in this movie. And I think it's why it cottons on and why it feels so special, and why we do think of him as one of the great Australians because the guy loves movies. <laughs> so, your relationship with this film—am I right in guessing it's a bit of a push-pull? It's possibly love-hate. I think so. I think so. I think, uh, weirdly, I think I would almost say I prefer late era Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. 
That's but all right. I, I'm with you on that. The exception would be Jackie Brown is my favorite of his movies, and it's the one that I revisit and rewatch the most, the one that I think about the most. And maybe I push kind of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction down because I like the way that he grows as an artist mm. so much that I almost find it difficult to go back and see him forming his voice. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think I get real pleasure out of that because I'm with you. I think- once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is his most recent film, is also his greatest achievement. I think he's only gotten better. But I get a real fun joy out of going back to the early stuff and seeing what he was like when he was scrappy and hungry and young. It's kind of like listening to a famous band's first album or EP or something. It's sort of mm-hmm. interesting. And I you can like, it's cute to kind of watch it and go, fuck, this is what he was like when he had no money and no one in his corner. Just Harvey Keitel. Like, he was the only guy that had his back, you know what I mean? It's interesting to see the influences take form because I think his influences in this film are so different to where he gets in his later days or where he really starts pushing towards. Like, you watch this film and I don't see any Spaghetti Western influence at all. No. But then when you get to Inglorious Bastards, you're like, oh, this film, dare I say, it, secretly is a Western. Totally, totally. Yeah, this movie is pretty- strict with its gangster genre influences. It doesn't really delve outside of that so much. It was like maybe later on he started getting a bit more playful with merging genres, but the first Mm. two, maybe even up to Jackie Brown, are pretty straight gangster films. They're just Mm. crime films. And they're kind of like in, obviously, I mean, dare I say the words- pulpiness in their attempts at fiction. They are quite pulpy movies, those early three, and there is something so- and we'll probably get into it as we get further on, but there's something so mammoth-esque, that David Mammoth yeah, type yeah, of- Yeah, yeah, I mean, good Lord, do I have to say these words? The dialogue, the dialogue of this dude. thing. Oh, my dude, God. The dialogue. The freaking dialogue. The way that these characters- dude. Teth are tet, the way they talk with each other. The the rapper day, the rapper poor. I wish Michael Rapper poor was in it. I'm gonna freaking be Mr. Green, okay? I'm gonna be freaking Mr. Green, okay? I'm freaking Mr. Green Green. because I love the Celtics, okay? I like the Celtics, okay? I'm a freaking Boston guy, I'm a Jersey guy, I'm a freaking New York guy. I'm from somewhere. I'm from somewhere. somewhere. I don't know, I'm fucking annoying. I'm from somewhere with an annoying accent. And I'm walking down the street as I'm telling you this thing, okay? I'm recording this on my front-facing video camera. And I'm a fucking actor. I'm a fucking podcaster, okay? But most of all, I'm a sports fan. <laughs> I wish Rappaport was in it. No, I don't. Rappaport? Um, oh, yeah, I'm okay with him not being in it. But he would be wonderful in a Tarantino movie. Yeah, he would really bring it. He was great in Justified. I'll say that. I've never been a huge Rappaport fan, but he's in a season of Justified. He's fucking great in it. And I'm going to disagree with Cameron here. There was a point in time where I was a huge Rappaport guy. (laughs) (laughs) It was a point in time I go, I fucking love this guy. Love his voice. Love his vibe. I liked him in Higher Learning. Uh, Yeah, Higher Learning's friends and all this shit where he plays Phoebe's boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Why are we talking about Michael Rappaport? (laughs) Because you actually said Rappaport itself. We can't can't (laughs) devote any more time to Michael Rappaport on this podcast. People will be hating us. Well, um, then let's get into our discussion. Let's listen to the trailer to Reservoir Dogs. Presumably, Stephen Wright's doing some shit in it. And we're going to get <laughs> into our discussion on a Res Dogs. Yeah. Face! Put the gun down! Hear your names. Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. 
Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. I feel scared because I'm falling the chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. If they hadn't have done what I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. You're acting like a first year thief. I'm acting like a professional. Cameron, you have done the impossible. You've gone out there on the internet and found someone online writing about Quentin Tarantino's film Res dogs mm. reservoir dogs mm. we're going to play a segment called love that log line you found a log line you're yeah. going to read it to us we're going to rate it see if we love it see if we hate it i found this log line on uh, a website that i never visit but you frequent quite regularly letterboxd.com mm-hmm. slash film slash reservoir dash dogs dash dogs yeah dash dogs that's also dash a good name dogs. that'd be a good name for a cuba gooding jr movie <laughs> <laughs> Like snow dogs. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like he takes he takes his snow dogs for Dash actually in like the real Olympics, not the not the freaking winter Olympics, summer style, man. You've also just given me an idea for a movie called Dax Dogs, and it's Dax Shepard doing that instead of Cuba. <laughs> oh, allow me to cut that out of the podcast so no one steals our ideas. <laughs> <laughs> We're big Dax guys on this show. <laughs> Yeah, we love Dax. Dax and Rappaport, my two favorite podcasters <laughs> slash actors. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, 1992, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Every dog has his day. Okay, that'd be a good tagline for Dash Dogs. <laughs> and Dax Dogs. <laughs> Our two competing movie project yeah. ideas. They're going to release on the same day and we'll see what people are drawn to more. <laughs> and the loser gets to keep the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> a botched robbery indicates a police informant and the pressure mounts in the aftermath at a warehouse. Crime begets violence as the survivors, veteran Mr. White, newcomer Mr. Orange, psychopathic parolee Mr. Blonde, bickering weasel Mr. Pink and nice guy Eddie unravel. Mm, not a fan. I hate Thumbs it. Thumbs down from this <laughs> fat fucking- Roger Ebert guy on this <laughs> side of the tank. I fucking hate it. That's why no I picked way. it. It's so badly oh. written. The fucking sentences don't even flow onto each other. No, no. The main no. sentence in the thing is crime begets violence as the survivors unravel, but that whole no. sentence is interrupted with listing the cast. Crime begets violence as the survivors, veteran Mr. White, newcomer Mr. Orange, unravel. So bad. I hate no. it. Fuck you. You need to honestly take a long walk off a short pier, pal, whoever wrote this. <laughs> yeah, you suck. You're a fucking loser. We and I'm listening to Michael Rappaport to fucking yeah, be Michael mean to Rappaport's you, brother. Michael going to fucking roast you at your doorstep. I think this is how you describe Res Dogs. Okay, slow motion, cool guys walk in suits, and then they have old 70s music play, and you're going to freaking froth it. <laughs> 
You're going to freaking cream your jeans when you see what these boys get up to. They're going to get into some mischief. There's going to be swearing, guns mm-hmm. pointed at faces. Sean Penn in tracksuits. Some of That's them are ugly. Some of them are handsome. Welcome to Reservoir Dogs, bitch. And welcome to the future of film. <laughs> and get used to it because we're going to be fucking making heaps of movies like this. Lots of Tarantino exploitation heaps of Tarantino movies. movies. Heaps of boondog saints. Heaps of oh, hectic yeah. shit. This is the Look- future. Suck my <laughs> asshole, you motherfuckers. Suck my fucking ass. We're sending heaps of scouts out to all the video stores around the world. And guess what? We're going to make a bunch of them famous. You like this movie? Well, guess what? I'm going to make one that doesn't have any fucking cool crime shit in it. And it's going to be about a fucking guy that works behind a counter. It's going to be called Clerts, bitch. And you're going to think it's so fucking sick for the next 20 years of your life. <laughs> Yes, that's a way better synopsis. Any bum can make a fucking movie, and Quentin Tarantino is the one who birthed them all. He's the original cinephile, and guys, this guy probably does fuck the movies. He is quite a freak. (laughs) Well, that's why he buys it on film. He wraps the fucking celluloid around these dingus, (laughs) and he whacks himself silly with it, and then he makes people watch it on the big screen at his house. Allegedly. That's the rumors we've heard. (laughs) That we we just made up. The rumors we made up is that he fucks the film. (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking about Reservoir Dogs. We're talking about it as a heist movie. Cameron, mm, mm. there's actually something really interesting about this movie. Now, don't sip your drink because you're drinking hot tea right now. I'm about now, to and spit I'm- it out, I bet. <laughs> I'm going to say something quite interesting. So this is a heist movie. And would you freaking believe it? Mm. You actually don't see the heist in it. Holy fucking shit. Thank God I didn't take a big sip of tea to stand because I would have spat it all over the microphone and fucking electrocuted my head off. What are you talking about? How can there be a heist movie where you don't even see the heist? Are you fucked in the brain? I'm not fucked in the brain. I'm sane in the brain and I see this movie and I actually think that's quite unconventional. What do you think the purpose of that is in this film to set up the heist, to show the fucking Mm. shit that happens after it, but you don't actually see the heist, which you would think would be the most of the movie, but it's actually the least of the movie. Not even one second of the heist is in the movie. My first thought is, there has to be some kind of mistake. <laughs> Hang on, let me rewind my tape. I'm I think, missing something. Okay, there's some fucked up shit on my DVD. And then I think, fuck, they must have forgot to put that scene in when they were editing it. Uh, hello, Video Easy. Um, video hard, actually. Video I don't hard. know what's going on. I don't on. know how this movie makes sense. <laughs> Can you help me out, please? <laughs> Someone come sit with me and talk how this movie makes sense to me. And then me on the other end of the phone. Oh, God, I'm not even actually supposed to freaking be here on this day. And Clerks. This guy's giving me problems. Clerks 2, Clerks 3. Best <laughs> movies <be> ever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, what the? what is the deal with that? Well, I mean, you think that's cool? I honestly, it's mean I honestly think it's the I, I always have thought it was cool. My whole mm. life, I thought, "Fuck, that is so cool, so cool, so interesting." But on this viewing, I've seen this movie a lot of times. I thought. Fuck, I would love to see the heist. Show me the money. (laughs) To quote my favorite actor that I hope to work with soon, Cuba Gooding Jr., show me the freaking cash, babe. Show Show me me the money. the fucking dollary dues. Because it's like you see one bit of it where Mr. Pink is running away and the cops are chasing him and you go, fuck, actually rewind this even further. I would love to Mm. see... Everyone in the bank, everyone's going crazy. Mr. Blonde is fucking popping and capping motherfuckers left and right. 
Man, quit a fucking Harvey Keitel's voice in this dude, movie. Dude, the Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth's voice. So, <laughs> do you crazy. feel like? Do you feel like after that? That it's like the second scene in the movie mm. is uh, Harvey Keitel and mm. Tim Roth driving the You're car. You're gonna be okay. Yeah, Harvey Keitel's doing that, and Tim Roth's going, "Man, I'm gonna <laughs> die, man. You're not gonna die. You're gonna be okay. I'm You're bleeding gonna be okay. out back here, man. I'm bleeding out." Do you think Quentin would have gone to dailies afterwards and just been like? Holy fucking shit, this is unusable. <laughs> I've got a masterpiece this, on my None hands. of this is usable. They sound like, both sound like Muppets. <laughs> sound insane. <laughs> Watching this movie again, I'm like, fuck, I don't know if I like either of those performances. Well, I kept thinking that too. I'm like, man, you can see like that he got confidence as a director later on because he mm. learned how to rein some people in. <laughs> yeah, um, hey, Harvey, what are you doing with your voice there? Fucking really I hate upsets it. me. I actually you hate Stop it. making that noise. Hey, Harvey, you know how you keep going, you're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. I hate hey, it. Harvey, you know how the most important mm. climax of our movie, you're going. <laughs> Can you not do that noise? Oh, and you Tim sound like Roth. the Cowardly Lion fucking climaxing, dude. Tim Roth, you know how like we're supposed to actually be feeling emotions watching a man bleeding out slowly over the course of two hours? You actually sound like Kermit the Frog, and I hate it. <laughs> You sound like Kermit the Flog, Frog. Kermit the, the Flog, his- dude. You sound like Kermit <laughs> the Flog. But when the guy pulled his hand out, he took the insides out with you. Yeah, dude. Freaking Kermit the Flog, my log. Are you kidding me? Get out of there. <laughs> I mean, there's so much that I like about this movie. I actually, I do like the theatrical element. Like, it is like mm. a mammoth play. I think that's cool. It's almost like he watched Glengarry Glen Ross and thought, what if these guys had guns? Mm. Um, let's do this, but they have guns. And I think that's kind of fun. That is really an apt point because Glengarry Glen Ross also is a movie with a robbery in it where, believe it or not... You do not see the robbery happen. We don't see it. And I think the effect in both of these things is that we have this ambiguity of how it went down, where Mm. we only have like this genuine Rashomon type thing. Mm. And Rashomon's a famous movie. Quentin Tarantino has definitely seen it. The guy's seen almost every single movie. Yeah, including Dash Dogs. Dogs. He's the only guy that we sent an early thing out to (laughs) said, hey, Quentin Tarantino, (laughs) what do you think about Dash Dogs? And it's just us talking to camera, pitching two ideas at the same time. (laughs) Um, but he, he, he uh, it's like the idea that you kind of piece together what's happened yeah. through the through the freaking dialogue, dude. Mm. The Teta mm. Teta Michael mm. Rapaport, the Michael of, Rapaport it all. of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I find that really interesting because you start trying to piece together what the truth is. Yeah, there's um another play that I studied in high school called The Dumb Waiter. Have you ever have you ever heard of that? You mean Manuel from <laughs> Town? Yeah, sorry, that's what I was thinking about. Manuel from Faulty Towers, the dumb waiter. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about, dipshit. <laughs> it's a Harold Pinter play called The Dumb Waiter. Yeah. Uh, and it's the big influence on Imbruge. It's about two men waiting in a room to do a job, for an order mm-hmm. to do a job. You don't know what it is, but you gather throughout the story that they are hitmen who have been hired to wait to do an assassination. Oh, wow. And spoiler alert, it's actually one of them has been tasked with hitting the other guy. Oh, God. And he's waiting is- for the order. Really great story. Really <sighs> cool premise. But I, mm. when I watched it this time, Res Dogs, I thought, man, he's fucking got Pinta going on. He's mm-hmm. got Mammoth. 
these are all cool influences. And I think for a low budge movie like this, it's sick that we don't see the heist. Like it actually works. But mm. I can tell that this is not something he was planning on doing for the rest of his career. He's like, yeah, give me more money, please. I'd actually like to see show way more heist in future. Way mm. more shooting up, way more violence, way more action. Yeah, and I think that there's so many different elements to the influence of this. Like, it's not just Glengarry Glen Ross, it's not just Pinter, but, like, the cinematic elements as well. There's obviously a famous one that it has been accused of being plagiarist towards, mm. which is uh, Ringo Lam's City on Fire, 1987 Hong Kong action film yeah. starring Chow Yun-Fat. Mm-hmm. And we love Chow. I've seen that movie and I've seen this this movie multiple times and I think there's stuff in its structure but when you watch them you're just like this is a totally unique movie it's you know I don't think that you can always accuse plots of being plagiarized I think it's so much when, when you talk about cinema there's so much more than the plot to me plot is probably the least interesting thing in any movie except for bad movies then it's quite important what about bad grandpa well, then the plot, what's the plot? <laughs> the little fat kid and his grandpa to go on holiday together, go across the country? No way. When you watch Bad Grandpa, you're like, That's it's plot, all about dude. the texture. It's no, the texture I, I care the about movie. the story. <laughs> I'm a That's story why Bad guy. Grandpa's a good movie, because it's not about the plot. It's the story. <laughs> it's about the world that they live in and all the shit that happens along the way where they have all their adventures. Like, it's like he the does Odyssey. his shit on the wall and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, dude, that's some Ulysses shit right there, dude. <laughs> but also, like, you know, other movies that kind of reminds me of uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, another heist mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Taking of Pelham 123, another yep. great heist movie that we've talked about on the podcast in the love past. Love it, love it. But then there was one when I was doing my research that struck me a little bit was, and it was something that I have not thought about at all, I even declare that at the top of this episode, but the Spaghetti Western Django by Sergio Corbucci, which obviously is a greater influence on Tarantino later on, there is a scene in it that is very, or that this film is rather reminiscent of, of getting tortured in the chair, is very mm. Sergio Corbucci's Django. There's a moment in those films that uh, speak to each other. Well, I was thinking uh, on this watch, I kept thinking Rio Bravo and mm. um, Assault on Precinct 13 as well well like two films that are just largely confined to a space with the violence mm. going on outside kind of bleeds in and yeah dude i i mean i gotta tell you i've seen this so many times and like we make fun of this movie a lot i still think it fucking rips like it's so entertaining it's fucking funny it's cool it has so the much dialogue the dialogue is like dude when he talk about madonna who's he's like yeah she likes to have sex and you listen to it and you go Man, Quentin Tarantino is the funniest cunt. <laughs> oh, man. Honestly, that was like nails on a chalkboard for me this oh, time. It's, it's actually brutal that he gives himself the opening monologue oh. of his own movie. And um, and it's like an attempt at comedy as well. It's Oh, man. It's fucking uh, really- it, uh, it was torture watching those opening moments for me this but time. But you know what? If any other actor around that table were delivering that monologue, I'd probably fucking adore it. 
Yes, if he gave it to like the Steve Buscemi character. Yeah, yeah. Or oh god, how good would it be if it was Lawrence Tierney? I mean, uh, even better. Yeah. So Madonna, she's this freaking broad out there <laughs> making kind of popular music, and she's a freaking loves a big penis. <laughs> it's just it's hard to watch because Tarantino is not a great actor and doesn't have the charisma as an actor to pull off a big fucking monologue like that that's essentially God. a comedy set piece you know so rude to say that but i do have to agree like <laughs> watching it this time i'm like man his eyes are like darting around and sh- he looks nervous to be delivering the dialogue yeah. fuck give it to someone else give it to Bushemi. he'd fucking eat that and spit it out this guy's a yeah. famous motor mouth Exactly. But Buscemi's part in that monologue, like his retort to the monologue about tips and stuff, Mm. is more interesting. I think that's when we get to the kind of uh, Seinfeldian aspect of this movie as well, which is like, you know, it's about the kind of mundanities of the world of crime as well. I think that's something that we see that early cycle of Tarantino really play in. It's that Pinterest quality of it all. Mm. It's the I wasn't supposed to be here today of it all, Mm. which is just like the- everyday mundane monotonies of being a freaking low-end crook. And I think that once we push past that opening monologue, which I think is so imbued with Tarantino, like his pop culturisms, Mm. which I think he finds ways to become so more elegant with in his later period as things go on. Makes more sense thematically later on. This one is like- just a monologue for its own sake. It's like, mm. hey, we're talking about how Madonna's song is about how she likes big dicks or whatever. That doesn't <laughs> thematically resonate with the rest of the no. story in any way. It's not a metaphor for anything. It's Later like on- his stand-up. It's like he's like, oh, this yeah, is what I've bit. always wanted to do as doing st- if it's I was like a stand-up. It's like a shit bit from an open mic, but- you know, later on in Kill Bill, when he gives Carradine that big Superman monologue, mm. it's kind of uh, fucking transcendent because it I says everything about the movie. Even with, like, his work as a screenwriter, which is rare, but in the Tony Scott film that he wrote, mm. they did, like, a pass on the screenplay, uh, Crimson Tide, where they talk about- God, I can't remember what comic book characters it is, but there's, like, this is great- Silver dense- Surfer? Silver Surfer, that great Silver Surfer monologue from Denzel. Mm. I think that works really nicely to be a character beat in the script, whereas this is just pointless. Like, I guess it's a way for us to know Mr. Brown, which actually sounds like Mr. Shit, by the way. (laughs) But it's like, who gives a fuck? I don't need to know That should be in the movie. It actually is in the movie. What? Yeah, it's part of the movie. It's another line that Quentin Tarantino says in character (laughs) as Mr. Shit. I know. (laughs) It's, um, yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, let's meet all these characters and get to know them all through this boring uh, pop culture chat in a diner. Mm. That's a great way to meet a bunch of criminals. I think that's awesome. But the bulk of the dialogue goes to Mr. Brown, who then has one other line in the movie and is dead off screen and not in the bulk of the mm. movie. So, why give it to him? Why not make it a fucking Harvey Keitel monologue about something? Why not just make it them arguing about tipping and we see where they stand on, like, class and culture for five mm. minutes? Why do we have to hear Quentin Tarantino do stand-up? Yeah, but I do- I would say this- if he does that, do you think we have, like, the butterfly effect of what his career is later on? I mean, this is the main thing everyone talks about with this movie is, like, obviously the fact- The ear-cutting scene, the fact that you mm-hmm. don't see the heist, and the pop culture-laden dialogue 
So the freaking dialogue. This is a big part of its success. This stupid five-minute monologue. Mm. So probably not. This is probably what made him famous in many ways. And I think it's the part you cannot extrapolate from the imitators that happen after this. Mm. I think this is such a big piece that they all take all those imitators from. Boondock Saints to freaking Guy Ritchie and yeah. the even less successful ones than those. I think it, this is like lucky such number a big- eleven. Yeah, lucky number eleven. That's a big one. <laughs> but the smoking hill- aces. <laughs> Smoking aces. Oh, man. What are the other Tarantino exploitations? The Way of the Gun, the Christopher McQuarrie movie. Oh. Uh, Tarantino says he wish he made. I'm like, are you psycho? Is that the no. Gun Carter one? What's, um, what's the Gun Benicio Carter one? Benicio Del Toro. One? Gun Carter one, Equilibrium? <laughs> yeah. Is that the one? Is that is that Angelina Jolie and um, oh, James wait. McAvoy or is that the other no, one? No, that's Wanted. Wanted, yeah. That's fuck. Wanted. I mean, there's a million of these fucking things. There's so many of these just sort of shitty Tarantino-esque movies that have come out. But yeah, they, it's often- You're right. It's They've taken the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs- and they've stretched that out into a two-hour movie. Mm. And it stinks. It's- it's. I think it's so important for his developing voice. Because when we look at how it develops, like his popular culture references become either visual. They become cultural. They mm. become signifiers. They become a language all unto their own. Mm. Uh, I think is fascinating. And we need this step to get to where it goes with Inglorious Bastards or where it gets to like discussions of music in Jackie Brown and how music moves these characters, mm. how music becomes like the backbone of their love story. I think you need this necessary step to get there. But for me, I have trouble coming back to this movie for that because this is like the most Tarantini of all the Tino films. This is the one that I kind of feel the most hesitance, the most hesitance I can to fully embrace it. And in the past, usually I go back and I can overstep that. I just embrace it and enjoy it as the debut film, Mm. as a debutante. Mm -hmm. But then coming back this time, honestly- that first scene really was nails on a chalkboard for me. Mm. H- Harvey Keitel, one of my favorite actors of all time. I could not zone into that performance <laughs> at all. And it was just, it was like perplexing <laughs> to me almost. But then there's so many qualities I love about this movie. I love the Chris Penn of it all. Mm-hmm. I wish Chris Penn and Tarantino had worked together more. Yeah, me there's too. There's something about that matchup that I just love so yeah, much. Yeah, great and fun maybe- energy. Maybe it's just the jacket. I love well, yeah. it because he looks He's like He's your me. style idol right there. <laughs> he is. It's how I dress. It's how I mm. fucking look as Chris Penn in this movie. <laughs> and what about- I mean, let's focus on the things you do like then. So, what does draw you in in this movie? I think part of it is the patience. Tarantino- It's something that you and I have talked about. He's got this beautiful patience where he's not afraid to just slow down scenes and just Mm. let them play out at a pace. Whether it's to music, like the horrific torture sequence to stuck in the middle with you. Mm. But it's just patience to give world building, to give detail to the world. You know, under stricter filmmaker that didn't luxuriate in these things, even early on in their career- 
I could imagine the freaking Stephen Wright's mm. radio back announcers just being completely stripped out and yeah. not being there. But to me, that's like a lovely detail that they're all talking about how this radio station is playing great songs from the 70s. And then they've got the weirdest comedian, the slowest, <laughs> most marbly mouth comedian to just <laughs> give these introductions to the songs throughout the movie. And I think I find a lot of pleasure in the slow downness of this movie. We find those moments. I love it. K-Billy, Super Sounds of the 70s. I love Stephen Wright. I wish he was in more things. He's got fucking such a good voice. Mm. Such a good voice. Perfect little tone. I think for me, I'm with you. The patience, the confidence in the how slow it is, I think really works because so many of these scenes are long ass fucking scenes. Just two people talking or whatever. They go for seven minutes and it never feels boring once. And I think that's a testament to the casting. It's got mm. a fucking badass group of dudes. All, yeah. who, all who know their way around some fucking dialogue. And I also think that, I mean, it's been talked about a million times, but the fact that it is chronologically all over the place, like a jigsaw puzzle, I think that fucking helps too. It's cool mm. to jump back and see things from earlier and then jump forward again and kind of, you know, you all over the place time-wise. I think that really works. And I think the success of this movie and the great impact and influence of this movie goes back to what we were talking about earlier this year, this unconventional, complicated narrative structure that mm. jumps around, fits together like jigsaw pieces to give you a greater whole at the end of it, and then how he continues that and also changes the way that Jigsaw is put together mm. in his next film, Pulp Fiction, is such a huge influence in the unconventional storytelling nature of films of this era that we talked about with the Millennium Mindfucking yeah. Saga that we covered earlier on, where film was becoming experimental in new ways that we hadn't seen since like the new wave period in the 60s in Europe and in the 70s in America. Mm, yeah, totally. I mean, it's I don't even really want to talk about it much more because it's the main thing everyone talks about with these early Tarantino movies. But all I can say is from my experience, I watched it this time thinking, I wonder if I'll find this shit cheesy or grating. And I didn't. Like, it just- The pacing kept up the entire time. I know what's going to happen in this movie. I've seen it so much, but I never felt out of it. The only- The closest times I got to being out of it were the opening monologue and then Tim Roth's Kermit voice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but for the most part, I think it's great. I even love- um, There's something with the backstory to Tim Roth's character, Freddie. I love that whole detour halfway through the movie where we sort of see his lead up to being included in this gang and how he's an undercover cop and he's had to learn monologues to sort of like fit in with them and seem like mm. a criminal- I love how long that takes. I love the world of watching this guy learn dialogue, mm, learn a scene, practice it in front of his friends, then tell the story. And I love when we finally get to him telling the story, there's this really interesting stylistic choice that Quentin does where Tim Ross' character starts doing the monologue in his own flashback. And he's saying it to the cops that are standing around him in the bathroom and the camera's spinning around him while he's 
saying the dialogue out loud to them. That's something that I think when I was watching it this time, I thought he never did anything like that again. That's a really odd stylistic choice where he kind of breaks the reality of the world for a moment and lets it become hyper real and hyper almost surreal. Mm. And I don't think in future films he ever really went that wacky again. And it's obviously something that he just was like, eh, that doesn't really feel like me. But I enjoy it this time around. Mm. It's like watching an artist experiment with different shit early on and then abandon it. It's cool. It's almost the surprise of revisiting this film because so many other conventions were what were aped or what he continued to flourish in and continued to develop. That being absent from the rest of his career allows it to be the surprise, the delight of coming Mm. back. Mm. The other thing that I find so interesting because it is in contrast to his later work is we talk about how he luxuriates in his dialogue, in the freaking dialogue of it all. And that Michael Rappaport of it all, where they're all talking to each other. (laughs) Those are the slowed down moments. But what he doesn't luxuriate in, what he snaps to and snaps quickly from is the violence, like the Mm. actual action scenes, the violence, the shootouts. They are so short. They happen in a heartbeat. They happen in a second. In a flash, they're all over. But then we do have to live with the goriness of it all, like the actual consequences of the violence. And I think that is so key because later on I feel like there is a lot of I don't want to say gratuity in his violence because it's I think it's the wrong term but mm. I think there's a lot of joy in his violence mm. or a lot of spectacle and yeah. allow you to enjoy like the exploitation of violence and I think early on it's weird how unexploitive the violence is yeah it's very bloody this movie and i think like maybe that's the main thing people will take away and probably did at the time they thought fuck this is bloody there's so much fucking blood but you're right the gunshot to tim roth's belly i think happens off screen but we spend you know essentially 45 minutes of this movie watching him slowly die so you're like living with the consequences of violence for the majority of this film and it's fucking gross and like the older i get the more that affects me the more the the torture scene affects me Mm. you know when i was younger and i would watch this i would view the torture scene as a comedy set piece almost Mm. because it's it is goofy it's set to music it's ironic michael madsen is loving the fucking hamming it up and all that shit But the older I get, the more I watch it, I think, Jesus fucking Christ, this is really disgusting and sad and kind of vile. Like, I still enjoy it, but um, I think of the human (laughs) now. I think of this cop who's fucking kept his mouth shut. He knows who Freddy is. He recognizes him and he's kept his mouth shut and allowed himself to get fucking tortured by a psychopath out of like loyalty to someone he doesn't even know and i get emotional thinking about that Mm. and you know what fucking got me this time when mr blonde leaves or whatever or maybe no mr blonde's been killed and the cop says to tim roth's character yeah we met about five months ago a friend introduced us and uh tim roth says i don't remember that and the cop's like covered in blood he's been bashed up his ears off and he's like he just says well i do i remember Mm. it and i was like Fuck, man, that's hectic. Just this, Tim Roth doesn't even know. Like, he's just, he's just allowed, this guy's just allowed himself to get beaten up and destroyed all for a guy that doesn't even remember meeting him. 
I started getting fucking sad watching that. Mm, and that's actor Randy Brooks. I think it's one of the best performances in this movie. Certainly better than Harvey Keitel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, it's a great performance. I feel like uh, he's Tarantino has always been very good at casting mm. small parts, and often these actors turn out fucking showstopper performances, mm. but then their careers don't really blow up after that. You know, He's like- a truly wonderful director of actors, and mm. I think it's very interesting to look at his early phase where it's about him writing great characters and then finding people to cast in and against type, but- you know, either it is new actors that he's excited to work with or people from the past he's kind of reinvigorating or reusing in a different way. Mm. I think Harvey Keitel kind of fits that bill here yeah. and then Lawrence Tierney definitely fits that bill here. But then, you know, in his late period, it's all about movie stars. And I find that really fascinating how he evolves from where he begins, which is revitalization of past stars. Mm. And now it's just like, yep, I can get the biggest stars in the world. How can I use them? I think it's kind of fascinating. I think to a degree, he's still discovering some people later on. I think Walton Goggins gets a pretty big career boost from getting some scenery chewing moments from Tarantino scripts. And, Mm. you know, he's not, he still likes kind of a discovery, but you're right. This, uh, this early period is all about, the new face and the revitalized face. It's funny that you don't love um, Kaitel in this. I do. I still think he's pretty great in this movie. And he was kind of in like a, a I guess, a hot streak independent mm. film-wise around this time, right? Was the piano kind of- uh, Pianos around, this, around time. this time? Yeah. He's kind of- he, I think it's one of Harvey Kaitel's life missions has always mm. been he works with directors early in their career because it's when they're finding themselves. It's when he can get most in tune with what the directors do. And he's been- helped a lot of directors get their starts. I think this is the most famous one. Like, mm. this is really a beautiful partnership for two movies where he helps bring him into this world, gets him the attention. Mm. And, of course, Jane Campion, the piano. Mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese, early on in his career, yeah. he works with him on those early films. And there's other examples of it throughout history as well, where he like helps birth these independent filmmakers into the world. And, you know, I think it's just because I love Harvey Keitel so much and there's so many great Harvey Keitel performances that this is just not one of my favourites. Yeah, okay. Do you think he's almost overshadowed by the movie? I think so, but I don't- I think that he's such a great ensemble player and that's kind of where he should sit. He's not the protagonist. He's not the lead of this movie. This is an ensemble film. And I think it's maybe because- we don't really get a way into his character. Like, I mm. don't really get to know him. That's Whereas, true. Whereas, like, Tim Roth, you get to know. Yeah, Mr. Madsen, Blonde, we do. We get a bit Madsen, of backstory. Madsen, I feel like yeah. you get to know a bit of his backstory through him. Here's, like, hints where he's like, oh, yeah, me in Alabama, which I'm like, okay, is he freaking Christian Slater from True Romance as well? And, like- Yeah, you know. there's little clues. I, you know, the nerd in me kind of loves little dropped hints to True Romance and Pulp Fiction and stuff. I kind of like it. But you're right, it's not a true insight into a character. I think, you know, could this movie have benefited from, like, a backstory into him, even if it's just a five-minute detour that kind of shows some inner life? I think- I don't think it does. I actually think that this endures because it is the film it is, endures because it was so fresh at the time that I think even putting in more conventional things like that would harm the movie. Hmm. You'd be putting a fly in the broth. Sure, people like me love that fly, but Mm -hmm. not everybody does. 
In fact, most people don't. I mean, that's why this movie works. I think most people don't like a fly in their broth. Well, it's just me then. You're a big fan. You love it. You love it. <laughs> I love the fly. <laughs> anyway, let's wrap things up. Let's get yeah. into Let's our- wrap a pour this up. <laughs> We're going to give away a best character actor Oscar to someone in this movie. Mm. Ordinarily, I'd argue we should give it to Michael Rappaport because <laughs> he's one of the great character actors and we've talked about him a heck of a lot for a guy that's not in this movie. But there's someone I really want to give a lot of attention to because I think the listeners would love this freaking guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should take the lead on this one. You know a little more about this dude than me, but I'm happy to fucking learn along with everyone else. Well, this- cast has got many famous actors, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, Quentin Tarantino himself, mm. some of like the great character actors of film history, not just modern film, but film history. But the person that gets like the least attention in that crew is Mr. Blue, played by Eddie Bunker, who might actually be the most significant actor, person in this miniseries that we're covering. Eddie Bunker is a beloved figure in Hollywood mm. because he wrote numerous books, some of which have been adapted into films like Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman, one of my favorite heist movies, Runaway Train, another great film mm. in that ballpark of heist films. Yes. But he writes these crime films like Animal Factory as well, which is a Steve Buscemi-directed film, that very authentic to this world of crime because he is a convicted felon. He was convicted of bank robbery, drug dealing, extortion, armed robbery, and forgery. So he spent a lot of time in the clink. One of the people he met in the clink is an actor that he worked with on Runaway Train, Danny Trejo, who has a similar life story of starting as a criminal and then falling into the world of film. So he's been known as like a consultant on a lot of these crime movies as well, a figure to go to for this authenticity. So I think there's no accident that Tarantino, one of the great fucking cinema files of all time, goes, I got to get Eddie Bunker in this world. I got to bring this world of authenticity there into this film. And one of the other things that is so key about Eddie Bunker and where his like influence on the heist film continues is the character that John Voight plays in Heat. Michael Mann's Masterpiece Heat <laughs> is based on Eddie Bunker. Yeah, the fence. Fuck, I love that. He even looks like him. He's got the same hair yeah. as him and shit. It's so cool. And there's a few other movies that Eddie Bunker's in that kind of fit this bill, but he's got kind of a great career. Straight Time, he plays uh, one of the criminals in that film alongside Dustin Hoffman, and that is based on his novel No Beast So Fierce, which is not exactly autobiographical, but is informed with his experience of trying to go straight, leaving mm. the world of crime behind him I and love the straight troubles. Isn't it just such a fucking great movie? It's sick, and it's like- I mean, great performances from everyone in it. And also a reminder that watching a fucking dude shatter some glass with a hammer and steal a fistful of diamonds is actually incredibly cinematic and incredibly oh. cool. The high scenes in that film are some of my favorite because they're just so down and out, yeah. grimy, gritty, dirty, oh. low-level trash type mm. stuff. And it is all about that cycle of crime and being stuck in that world. It feels so authentic. I think a lot of it is thanks to Eddie Bunker. And another fun fact about Eddie Bunker, the most deaf character, the Yassine Bey character in 16 Blocks mm. is called Eddie Bunker. 
<laughs> that's cool. So that's a shout out to him, I assume. Yeah, shout out to him and shout out to him in the longest yard, 2005. One of your favorite sandal flicks. I love that flick. I really do. Do we want to give another award out? Oh, God. Must we? Let's just give one to uh, Tarantino for making sick-ass movies with fucking cool-ass dialogue. Oh, I would say, speaking of the freaking dialogue, dude, Mm. why don't we give the Oscar to freaking Madonna Mm. for being the topic of said dialogue? Mm. Yeah, we'll give it to Madonna. We'll give give this it to freaking Madonna. Madonna, dude. I'll give this award to Madonna for writing the song Like a Virgin and the song True Blue, both of which are discussed in this flick mm-hmm. and turned into a hilarious stand-up routine. <laughs> it's actually a sit-down routine because sit he's down. sitting down. Yeah, it's like fucking Green Room with Paul Provenza or some shit. It's like a tough <laughs> Would, crowd. Do you think this is a good idea for a stand-up special <laughs> to just sit down at a table having breakfast and with a bunch court. of guys around you <laughs> and you're just talking or you're just doing all your bits to these guys almost like that freaking Comics Unleashed <laughs> show? And they're like just not laughing and they're just listening <laughs> every now and then asking a waiter to top up their coffee and shit like that. That actually is awesome. Yeah, maybe we should do that. Maybe that's in Dax, in freaking Dax Dog, dude. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. All right. Well, congratulations, Madonna, for mm. writing a couple of wonderful pop songs and performing them and allowing yourself to be fodder for this crack up of a stand up routine by the, she actually, by the king himself. <laughs> she actually did a retort to him where she signed a copy of her erotica album, signed to Quentin. It's not about dick, it's about love, Madonna. Okay, that's nice. So I think she freaking ripped him a new one. Yeah. Suck and I don't want to go know what he's doing with that new one. I don't <laughs> want to know. <laughs> well, that was fun. I'm glad we talked about that movie. Yeah, and it's one that I think has already been perfectly remade. I don't want to touch it. That early 2000s era video game that they made for the original Xbox, where I think only Quentin Tarantino and Michael Madsen have their look. Actually, it's only Michael Madsen is copied his likeness Hmm. in the Reservoir Dogs video game, and that's perfect. That's how it should be. This is how this movie should be. Interactive experience with like ghastly looking characters (laughs) populating the world in a 3D image. <laughs> and I think even Harvey Cartel's character has a ponytail for some reason. You're going to be okay. <laughs> That's what it says as you're running low on health. <laughs> Res Dogs by Tarantino. Good on you, buddy. Looking forward to seeing that 10th flick and maybe that justified TV series that you're apparently making. Oh, God. I hope he's just going to become a TV guy. That's how he's going to subvert doing 10 films only. I'll be stoked if he makes this. Ju- uh, the rumor is that he's directing this justified series, uh, a limited series based on the Elmore Leonard book City Primeval, which I've read and love. I mean, if Tarantino makes it, I think that's badass. Well, he and Elmore Leonard are match made in freaking heaven. So really I are. think that is so wonderful. I hope he does it. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be continuing the heist miniseries. We're in our final stretch of movies. We're going to be talking about J.P. Melville's Le Cercle Rouge, which is the Red Circle, one of my favorite heist movies of all time, one of my favorite gangster movies of all time. It is a marvellous picture. It can be a little hard to track down, but it is worth doing. So, find it. Le Circle Rouge. It's a freaking beauty and a must. One of the great heist films of all time. 
And then we're a week away from wrapping things up and we'll be mm. finding a new topic. So let us know. Maybe you guys have got some ideas on what you'd like to see us do in the future. Hit us up on the socials at This Is Alexi, at I Am Cameron James, at Total Reboot Pod on Twitter and Facebook. And if you want to hear more from us, sign up to our Patreon. Yeah, five bucks a month, patreon.com slash total reboot. You get access to bonus pods and you can talk to us directly in our Facebook Cinephile Registry secret group. So you can suggest stuff to us directly there. And we often, we listen, we do it. Like we did Fantastic Mr. Fox as a result of that. We'll do other ones as a result of that. It's a blast. It's so much fun. The people in there are so sick. Uh, They're such good film nerds. It's great to have a great community of film nerds around us. And we also will be releasing an episode in the vein of this series. We'll be talking about some heist favorites that didn't quite fit the bill, didn't quite meet our quota for coming and being part of the big ass miniseries. But we do want to shed some light on some of our favorites that we think we should be catching up with. That's true. It's all true. In the meantime, guys, please support mm-hmm. cinema, yeah. support your local cinema, support mm-hmm. your big ass megaplex. And do not forget to buy movies on DVD or, as I would say, Reservoir Dogs, it is one of the ultimate VHS tapes. Yeah. Don't be afraid to splash out on a brand new VHS. And a VCR to go along with it. (laughs) Bye. Bye.